Virgil said the rest of hell is force and fraud, and first comes force. So what is that force? And what are the sins of force? Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we walk slow, slow, slow through Dante's masterwork, comedy. <laughs> and we are up in Canto 11. We are at Virgil's Mappa Mundi, Mappa Inferno, his map of hell, as they sit beneath the tomb of a heretic pope. Well, that's enough to just stop you right there. As our pilgrim and guide sit beneath the tomb of a heretic pope, Virgil decides he's going to outline the rest of Inferno for our pilgrim and for us. In fact, we'll talk about that in this episode, how this is as much for us as the pilgrim. So Virgil has said that the rest of the sins are about injustice and malice, and there are two sorts, force and fraud. And fraud is worse, since it's lower, so first comes force. So here's our passage. The first circle is all about the violent. And because force may be directed at three persons, the circle is actually constructed and divided into three smaller rings. Against God, against oneself, and against one's neighbor, you can commit acts of violence. That is, against them and their possessions, as you will hear through clear reasoning. Death by force and ghastly wounds may be thrust upon one's neighbor. What's more, their effects may be subject to pillaging arson and even extortion. Therefore, when it comes to murderers and those who inflict willful harm as well as plunderers and predators, the first of the smaller circles torments all these in separate sections. People can lay violent hands on themselves and their own effects, and so the second smaller ring holds those who repent without any results. That is, the ones who deprive themselves of your world the ones who gamble away and squander their nest eggs, the ones who weep where they should be happy. A person can also use force against the deity when we deny or commit outright blasphemy in the heart, and also by disrespecting nature and its beneficence. So the smallest ring seals with its signet both Sodom and Cahor, as well as those who get violent against God in their hearts or tongues. That's the explanation for the circle of violence that we are about to take on. In fact, we're going to finish up Canto 11, and we will be here in the seventh circle of hell amongst the violent for Cantos 12 through 17, the longest single bit so far in any one circle. And as you heard, this circle has disparate parts inside of it. This passage breaks itself into two tercet sections, that is six-line sections, two three-line sections. It's kind of easily broken up. Virgil's trying to be very clear, <laughs> more like Dante the poet is trying to be very clear. So let's just take them one at a time. First, the introductory section. Virgil says the first circle is all about the violent. And we have to pause just a little bit because the word is violent in the medieval Florentine. And if you remember, we had been on the words force and fraud, and we could quibble. Is force the same as violence? 
I think it is. I think we're using synonyms here in the passage. I'm not going to make too much out of it. You should know that there are tons of scholarly articles out there about the redefinition of force as violence. I, I just can't dance that fast on that small of the head of a I can dance on a lot of pins, but that one seems really small to me. So I'm just going to pass over it and say that force and violence are synonyms, sort of, in the passage. So the first circle, that is the seventh circle of hell, the first circle down from where they are at the edge or the farthest edge of the sixth circle of the heretics, the first circle is all about the violent. And because force, now we have the word force back, may be directed at three persons, the circle is actually constructed and divided into three smaller rings. I should just pause right here and say, gone is the Aristotelian mean. Remember, we had all this discussion of the angry and the sullen and the avaricious and the prodigal, and we were talking all about this Aristotelian mean down the middle. You'll notice that these sins don't have any Aristotelian mean in them. There's no middle ground between two poles. Instead, it seems as if the nature of the offense itself is changing, and we'll talk about this in a minute, getting more scholastic. So the circle is constructed in and divided into three smaller rings, and then Virgil lays it out. He says, against God, against oneself, and against one's neighbor, you can commit acts of violence. What is he talking about there, that these are the three ways you can commit violence? In the Gospel of Mark, one of the scribes, we're in uh, chapter 12, sorry, <laughs> I should say where we are. We're in chapter 12, and at verse 28 of the Gospel of Mark, one of the scribes comes up to Jesus, and he hears him talking. And, you know, one of the temple scribes, the Torah scribes, comes up to Jesus, and seeing him, you know, he sees that Jesus is doing well in his discussions with other scribes. So he says to Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? What, what, what's the primary commandment? And Jesus answered, this is verse 29, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So basically gives the, the, the Shema, the very uh, fundamental prayer of, of, he, of the Hebrew religion. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then goes on, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and besides him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, which is much more important than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe is riffing off the prophet Isaiah, the opening bits of the prophecy of the prophet Isaiah. But let's just skip that. And says, okay, this is the most important thing, more than any burnt offering or sacrifice. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. This bit about what is the greatest commandment is a little bit funky. After all, one would expect perhaps Jesus to pick out one of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Instead, Jesus goes after other commandments, uh, other commandments that are not necessarily so forthright. 
these are found buried down in Deuteronomy and other places in Torah. And by picking these out and not picking out, you know, one of the, I think the question the scribe is asking is which of the Ten Commandments is the greatest? And then Jesus turns back into a more in-depth part of Torah in the law and pulls up these two statements about love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, these sins of violence are a perversion of this gospel of love that Jesus seems to be preaching in this passage from the gospel of Mark. So violence can be committed against God, against one self and against one's neighbor, just as Jesus said, you have to love God, love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, you should just know that Aquinas interpreted these levels, God, oneself, one's neighbor, in just this order. Um, Aquinas interpreted this as a logical order. That is, the fundamental thing is you must love God. After that, you must love yourself, and after that, you can love your neighbor. If you want to know where that is, that's in part two, section two of the Summa Theologica, question 118. So here, we can see that the sins of violence are a perversion of this law of love. I want to call your attention to one other thing before we pass on. Dante's doing a really confusing and difficult and uh, really honorable fusing up here. He's getting this force and fraud, as I told you in the last episode of the podcast, from Cicero. He's getting some of this from Aquinas. He's getting some of this from the Gospels. And also running underneath this is the final poem of the second book of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. And Dante is taking all of this Cicero, Aquinas, there's a little Aristotle in here. Aristotle, the Gospels, and Boethius is fusing it up into a notion of what evil is in order to come up with these final circles of hell. And I want to read you the poem. This is the final poem of Book two of Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. This is in the recent translation by David Slavitt. It's a really nice translation. You should look it up if you don't have a copy of the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. This is a great one to have. It's not encumbered with notes. It's pretty straightforward, and his translation is very flexible and fluid. And if you know anything about the Constellation of Philosophy, you know that it includes these philosophical passages and then poems inserted in it. The last poem of Book Two of the Constellation of Philosophy in Slavic's translation runs like this. The world rings its regular changes, its elements reconciled, held in balance in their battle. By its immutable laws, Phoebus comes on with rosy dawns in his flying golden car, and Phoebe brings the silver moon, filling Hesperus's promise. The churning sea is confined to its bed, and the land keeps to its bounds, for each is subject to a greater power the other helps to enforce. What governs earth and sea and sky is nothing else than love whose tight reign, if it ever slackened, would leave creation in chaos of civil war's utter ruin. Love binds people, too, in matrimony's sacred bonds where chaste lovers are met, and friends cement their trust and friendship. How happy is mankind if the love that orders the stars above rules also in your hearts. The notion here is that love is the controlling force, the controlling 
bond of the universe, and therefore it unites, as you just heard, one to one's love of God, one's love of oneself, and one's love of one's neighbors, as well as holding all the stars in place. It's kind of a wild notion. you got to admit, it's kind of... Uh, Beautiful just to consider for a moment that perhaps the entire universe, the very structure of the universe itself, is held together by this human emotion of love. I mean, it's it's not very Newtonian and it's not very Einsteinian, but it is a little bit beautiful to think of for just a minute. All of this is being fused up to say in the seventh ring of hell, the seventh circle, where we're headed, that all of this will come together and show us that love is being distorted by violence against God, against oneself, and against one's neighbor. And then Dante adds this little bit. You can commit acts of violence against those and their possessions. You notice that in everything I just read you from the Gospel of Mark to the Consolation of Philosophy, possessions weren't added. That's because Dante is now adding Roman law, old Roman Empire law to it, and saying that violence can be committed against me or against the things I own, my house, my car, my clothes, my dogs. Violence can be committed against those, and committing violence against those is the same as committing violence against me. This is going to be very hard to get your brain around, but we're going to have to get everyone's brain, including my own, around it to get through Cantos 12 through 17. So it's not just violence against me, but it's a violence against the things I own. Just think how complicated this is. This is Aquinas plus Aristotle plus the Gospels plus the Consolation of Philosophy plus Roman Law plus Cicero. All trying to bear in on what exactly is the nature of violence. Let's move on to the next six lines. Death by force and ghastly wounds may be thrust upon one's neighbors. What's more, their effects may be subject to pillaging, arson, and even extortion. Therefore, when it comes to murderers and those who inflict willful harm as well as plunderers and predators, the first of the smaller circle torments all these in separate sections. So we've had this, this list laid out for us against God, against oneself, and against one's neighbor. And now we're going to actually pull it apart. And here that comes the first bit, which is the stuff against one's neighbor. Death by force and ghastly wounds may be thrust upon one's neighbor and by extension on one's neighbor's effects, household goods. So this smaller ring inside the seventh circle is going to hold murderers, all those who inflict willful harm, plunderers, and predators. In other words, murder and plundering is the first smaller ring in the seventh circle of hell. Remember Virgil said, you're going to hear all this through clear reasoning. What he means is scholastic reasoning. What he means is reasoning that uh, such that the scholastics, like Thomas Aquinas practiced, that is the ability to take a point and to divide it and to divide it and to divide it and to divide it, and to divide it into smaller and smaller parts until you finally reach some kind of logical conclusion. This kind of reasoning, scholastic reasoning, is a terrible trap. We're going to talk about how it's a trap later in way future episodes. It's a terrible trap that can be very blinding. And yet at the same time, it's here that we are moving into a very theological way of reasoning. That is, we're going to take a sin, 
We're going to pull it apart. Okay, wait, here's violence. Now, what are the three parts of violence? Now, how can those three parts be practiced? Now, what are the subsets under those three parts? That's all this scholastic reasoning, just constantly pulling things into smaller parts to see them. That's too curt a way to explain scholastic reasoning, but it will do for now <laughs> with much more to come in future episodes. Let's move on to the second small ring inside the seventh circle of hell. People can lay violent hands on themselves, Virgil said. Ah, now we come to the suicides and their own effects. And so the second smaller ring holds those who repent without any results. Somehow, the people who lay violent hands on themselves or their effects are caught in a state of constant repentance. They're always sorry for what they did. They're always sorry that either they ruined all of their earthly goods and willfully squandered them, or that they killed themselves. And here we're going to finally come amongst the suicides. And you might say, wait a minute, suicide is one step down from murder? Go back to that uh, that Thomistic, St. Thomas Aquinas, that Gospel of Mark passage against God, against oneself, and against one's neighbor. And you can see the logic is going to force things on us that may feel counterintuitive or not emotionally right. That's that problem in scholastic reasoning. Wait till we hit the eighth circle of hell and wait till we hit what happens inside the eighth circle of hell. We're going to get really tripped by scholastic reasoning. And of course, I would sit here and say to you as a modern person in this year, 2021, of course, I would say to you, this is absurd. I would never put a, a suicide lower in hell than a murderer. I never put anybody in hell. But for that matter, I would certainly never put some poor person who laid violent hands on themselves farther down in hell than a murderer. Yet, the logic of the passage from the Gospels and the logic of St. Thomas Aquinas and the logic of Aristotelian ethics and the logic of what's happening around us and even from Roman law is forcing the, this on us. Let me say one more thing about it. Notice how Virgil says what about it. In other words, these uh, he says, these are the ones who deprive themselves of your world. And it's right there, your. He uses the formal or plural form of you who deprive themselves of your world. And I take it that he is not addressing Dante suddenly, Dante the Pilgrim suddenly in the formal. Rather, this lets us know that this sermon is for us. It's a plural you. That is the ones who deprive themselves of your world. Virgil's talking right to us. He's talking to all the readers of this poem. He's not just talking to the pilgrim sitting there. He's talking to all of us. The ones who gamble away and squander their nest eggs. These have to be way different from the profligate we found up with the avaricious. Remember? Rolling those boulders. They're screaming at each other. <laughs> why do you hold on to things and why do you throw them out? Remember that? And there's, there's these two modes of avaricious. There's either, you know, uh, being profligate spender or there are um, uh, people who just hoard all their money. Well, this is, must be different because this is the ones who gamble away and squander their nest eggs. And then it strikes me that here's how we know the difference. The ones who weep where they should be happy by adding that emotional tag 
to who's in this second small ring inside the seventh circle of hell, we discover the difference between those who are up with the avaricious and who are profligate with their money. Those people are spending their money and they're spending it and gleeful, you know, they're going out to the mall and they're buying a new dress and they're, I don't know, they're happy in what they're doing. <laughs> Maybe spending too much money, all those clerics up there with the avaricious, but they're totally happy doing it. These people are weeping where they should be happy. In other words, they are willfully squandering their possession to inflict harm on themselves. It would be as if I am such a masochist that I burned my house down to watch it burn for sheer masochistic delight. It strikes me that that's the difference. This is a different order of profligacy or of squandering. This is squandering and it causes you to weep where you should be happy. These people are spending it almost in a masochistic way to hurt themselves. They're just getting rid of everything. This is not somebody spending down their trust fund because they don't know how to control themselves. This is somebody spending down their trust fund because they want, they actually want to weep where they should be happy. That's the second little ring in the seventh circle of hell. Let's pass on to the third little ring. A person can also use force against the deity when we deny or commit outright blasphemy in the heart and also by disrespecting nature and its beneficence. Now it's going to get tough. So the smallest ring seals with its signet. There's a coining metaphor going on here. Seals with its signet both Sodom and Cahor, as well as those who get violent against God in their hearts or tongues. In the first little ring... Of the seventh circle of hell, we have the murderers and plunderers. In the second little ring, we have the suicides and the squanderers. And in the third little ring, farthest down, we have the blasphemers and then two other groups, which I want to talk to you about for just a second. I should say, before I say that, that this passage in the translation, you can find this on my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go to the same place, and you can look up this translation here. And I should tell you that I have added all kinds of transition words in my translation that are not in the original. For example, in that line, first line, a person can also use force against the deity. I added the word also. I did this because it's a podcast, because you have to hear it, because you're probably listening to this rather than reading it. And I was trying to give you clues about how we're moving on through the thought. This passage is largely lacking in any kind of transitional moments. And so it's very dry. It lays it out in a very dry, scholastic, knife edge kind of way. You know, this group and then this group and then this group. And the real, um, uh, the real divisions here have to do with the lines. Six lines on this, six lines on this, six lines on that. But because you're listening to this on a podcast, I felt the need need to add transitional words. And I'll just say right up front, all this adding of what's more and 
as well as, and this is me adding stuff so you can hear it, so you can kind of hear the logic of it. Okay, so a person can also use force against the deity when we, and it's interesting that Virgil flips into the first person plural, when we deny or commit outright blasphemy in the heart, it's interesting there. You you could probably stop there for just a second and wonder why Virgil flips into the first person plural. Virgil, who is damned in limbo. Is it because of his own relationship to the Greco-Roman gods? It's interesting. It, it, it's just wild that it flips out. Is it because the poet has lost control and is now preaching us a sermon on what makes up violence? And because the poet has lost control, he's suddenly the, the slipping all around from talking about your world to we do this. And the, the, the focus of the passage is shifting. It could be. And there are actually critics who have argued that, that there's a way in which this passage kind of escapes its own technique at certain points. And, it, and the poet loses control of the tightness of the passage. Maybe, but remember, six lines, six lines, six lines, it's pretty structured, it's pretty tight, so maybe there's a reason Virgil flips out into we, first person plural. A person can also use force against the deity when we commit, when we deny or commit outright blasphemy in the heart, and also by disrespecting nature and its beneficence. This is where it gets hard. So the smallest ring seals with its signet both Sodom and Cahor. These are generally taken to mean Sodom, homosexuality, and Cahor, a banking center in France. And generally, these are taken to refer to homosexuality and usury, or the lending of money for interest. So here's the order. Murderers and plunderers, suicide and squanderers, blasphemers, homosexuals, and moneylenders. Moneylenders are farther down in hell than murderers. We're going to talk much more about this. We're going to talk much more about why this is. Sod I should just tell you that Sodom and Cahor are a little bit problematic in the passage. When we get down to this, the third small ring inside the seventh circle, when we meet the homosexuals, I should just tell you that this is the only way we will ever know that they are the homosexuals. When we get down to those cantos, there are two amongst the homosexuals. When we get down to those cantos, I should just tell you, it's never stated clearly what their sin is. And the only way you might know it is back to this reference of Sodom. And there are many people who will claim that this is not homosexuality being, uh, being punished in this little circle of the seventh circle of hell. It's tough. This is the only clue we have that those people who we're going to meet in two full cantos are homosexuals. Cohor is a little easier. It was a money-lending center, a banking center, so it's a little easier to predict that that's usury that we're talking about, but <clears throat> hard, difficult to lay your hands actually on it. Still, we're going to take it right now. I'm going to take it as homosexuality and money-lending and just leave it there with the signet ring, both Sodom and Cahor, as well, and this is the last bit, as those who get violent against God in their heart and tongues. And this seems, of course, to be blasphemy, the farthest down you can get, the way down bit of blasphemy. Now, I should tell you that these are reversed. When we get down there, we'll discover that the blasphemers actually come first, then the homosexuals 
then the moneylenders who are sitting right out on the edge of the seventh circle of hell. So this order here is reversed. Is it reversed because Dante changes his mind? Is it reversed because Virgil is going backwards and forwards through the reasoning? Not clear. Don't actually know the answer to that. Just tell you that it's reversed from how it's stated right here. However, we just just pause for a minute about blasphemy. The sin of blasphemy here seems to be violence against God in heart and tongue. And the real sin here, and we'll get to this when we get down to the blasphemers, the real sin here, the real evil, is people who think that they can inflict violence on God. That is, God is such, especially in the Christian tradition, that <clears throat> that God is untouchable. God could not be the object of violence. However, People, blasphemers, apparently believe that God can actually be the object of violence. That is, what they say and what they feel toward God somehow inflicts violence onto God. And this seems to be the very root of the sin itself, way down there when we get to the blasphemers. But that's all to come because this is our map of the seventh circle. And I just want to say one more thing about it. We are about to descend here. Now, we're not going to go here in the next episode of this podcast. In the next episode of the podcast, we're going to pass on into Virgil's explanation of fraud and the final two lowest circles of hell, the eighth and ninth circle. But I just want to say something about the seventh circle, because what we just went through is where we're headed in Cantos 12 through 17. We are about to enter the most unnatural part of Inferno we have yet encountered. The people above us, Francesca out on the wind, Chaco under the hail and rain, the guys running the boulders around in avarice, the people sunk down in the sticks swamp because of their anger or their sullenness. That world all still feels like our world. Hail, rain, thunder, wind, swamps. It still feels like our world, right? Mm, the seventh circle, we are going to a different place entirely. We're going to a place where there are rivers of boiling blood, where fire can rain out of the sky, where there are thickets that bleed, and we're going to meet a series of creatures who are half human, half beasts, like centaurs and harpies with human faces and bird bodies. We're about to descend to one of the most surreal parts of all of Dante's comedy, worthy of Salvador Dali, worthy of the most surrealistic kind of strangeness. We are leaving the natural world behind. We're going to talk about that endlessly when we get down to the homosexuals. We are leaving the natural world behind and we are coming out into a nightmare scape where trees can talk and bleed, where rivers boil with blood, where it can rain fire. Very strange bits ahead. But not yet. Because after this passage, Virgil's got to explain fraud to us. And that's our next assignment on the podcast, Walking with Dante. So subscribe, like the podcast, drop down to the bottom of that Apple menu, write a comment. Ooh, that would be the best thing I could imagine. It would do no violence to me, <laughs> but rather be part of the love that binds the universe together. Come back. We're going to talk about how Virgil defines fraud. There's some 
problems in that passage too. They're not quite as naughty as some of these problems, but there's some problems in that passage too on the next episode of Walking with Dante.